I'm going to move on to the reading. I'm going to read. Um, so, uh, welcoming back uh, Rob for, for August. Looking forward to what Rob's got to say. Going back into um, Sermon on the Mount, um, specifically Matthew 5. So, I'm just going to pop that reading up. I'm going to read you uh, a couple of bits. Here we go. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your lights shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Rob, over to you. Thank you, Nick. And uh, hello, everybody. And we're, we're really thrilled that our pastor is going to be able to take some time off. And I'm also thrilled to have the opportunity to share with you over these next five Sundays. I know some of you will be going on holiday as well. Uh, Denise and I are going down to Eastbourne for a week. When I spoke to the people at the hotel, they did say, Mr. G, you do know you're probably going to be the youngest couple here. So I'm not quite sure what we're facing, but I'm looking forward to it anyway. You may not remember to what happened before lockdown, but in the church, at least, we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And we discovered that the values and the standards of Jesus, as they are mentioned certainly there in the Eight Beatitudes, are in direct conflict with the standards and values of the world. And that's why I've called the series Countercultural Christianity. The world, you see, judges the rich to be blessed, not the poor, whether materially or spiritually. The world applauds the happy-go-lucky and the carefree. It doesn't applaud those who take sin and evil seriously, so seriously that they actually mourn over it. The world approves the strong and the brash, not the meek and the gentle. The world looks up to the full, not the empty. Those who, those who mind their own business, not those who are concerned about the misery of others. The world applauds the achievers, the people who attain their desired ends and their goals, even if it, the means are a little devious. The world does not take note of the pure in heart those who refuse to compromise their integrity. The world has time only for the popular, the secure, and those who live a life of ease. 
It has no time for those who have to suffer persecution, especially when it's persecution for doing the right thing. The Beatitudes, remember, are a kind of description, if you like, of the life of the Christian disciple. And as challenging as that might be, and there is a reward at the end, and that reward is described as the kingdom of heaven. And right in the beginning, you'll remember that we referred to the kingdom of heaven as a two-part, a two-part reward. There's an obvious future inheritance in God's new kingdom, but there's also a present reward where we describe this, the kingdom of heaven as the unhindered or the ungrieved operation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's the kingdom of heaven now. The kingdom of heaven for us is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, allowing him to work as he wants to work. You see, it's impossible for a Christian to be a Christian without having the presence of the Holy Spirit in one's life. But Paul does write to the Ephesians and he says this, do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So it is true to say that amongst Christians, there are some who often, even constantly, seem to grieve the Holy Spirit and not allow him uh, his way in their lives. And there are other believers who allow the Spirit greater exercise of power in their lives. And you can see it in their speech and in their behavior. And these are the Christians of the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, the pure in heart, and so on. And as believers who are serious about living the demands of the, the Beatitudes, we're called with a very special calling. We see it here in verse 13, and we see it again in verse 14 and 16. But verse 13 reads like this, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So what does it mean? to be the salt of the earth. The first insight here is that it is clear that Jesus knew that we as Christians were never going to be in the majority. We would always just be a little sprinkling across the population in most countries. We're not called the sand of the earth or the sea of the earth or the grass of the earth. We're called the salt of the earth. And it appears that we are going to be used sparingly wherever and ever we are used. And we need to remember this. I find no indication in the scriptures that real professing Christians have ever been or ever will be more than a small minority in the population. Here in the UK at the moment, Bible-believing Christians, born-again Christians, make up somewhere between 1% and 2% of the population, a tiny, tiny minority. The only at times it may have been higher is probably during the time of the Commonwealth, the time of the Puritan rule of Comrill, and maybe during the 18th century, during the revivals under Wesley and Whitfield. But even then, true Christians were still always in the minority. And today, less than 4% of the population go to church, and less than half of that are true Bible-believing Christians. But we are nonetheless commanded to be salt to the earth. This is not only a description of the Christian, but it's also a comment on the earth. Why would the world need salt in the first place? What is the world missing that we can provide? Does it imply a rottenness, a state of decay in the world that needs to be halted? Is it about a world that has become so desperately tasteless 
Is it that the world is so terribly wounded that salt is needed to cleanse its wounds and prevent further infection? Martin Lloyd-Jones says it clearly implies a rottenness in the earth. It implies a tendency to pollution and to becoming foul and offensive. His successor, R.T. Kendall, tells of a time when he asked his students to come up with the different uses of salt. And they came up with more than 40 different uses, amongst them things like healing, cleansing agent, eliminate stains, get rid of tea stains, it melts ice, keeps your feet from slipping on ice, you can gargle it for sore throats, you can bathe your tired feet in it, you can use it on bee stings, it stops bleeding, it kills unpleasant odors, it keeps clothes white, keeps disease away, helps lessen our sour tastes, use it as seasoning, improving the taste of food, it's a preservative, it's an antiseptic, and so on and so on and so on and so on. In Jesus' day, his audience would have been well aware of the usages of salt. Salt was often used as a currency, a form of currency. We know that Caesar often paid his soldiers in salt, and you say, well, that's not very nice. But salt was second only in value to gold in many cases. Often there was fraud because the salt was mixed with a useless white powder and it wasn't as it ought to be. Salt was used in Jesus' day for food preservation and for flavoring. And it was also used medicinally. But let's look at a few examples this morning whereby we might legitimately interpret this verse that we are the salt of the earth. How can we as individuals, as the church in the world, truly function as salt? Let's mention a few of these. Number one, salt as an antiseptic. This is the first analogy I'd like to bring to you. Remember an analogy is a is a partial picture, it's not an exact representation. So we see Jesus possibly saying here that we are to act in the world in a similar way to which salt acts as antiseptic in a wound. We are to be salt acting upon a fallen world, a wounded society. Jesus diagnoses the world as broken and sick and wounded by sin, by greed, by rebellion, by unbelief, by immorality. He says there's something terribly wrong with the world. And in reality, we all know that. Folk may today make the case that individuals are intrinsically good and basically well-meaning, which the Bible says they aren't. But few would say that the world is in great shape. And by this, they don't just mean that we are ecologically in trouble, but that we are morally in trouble as well. Everywhere there are signs of moral decay sexual immorality in the celebrity culture, dishonesty in the political world, greed in the economic world, violence in the inner cities, and war in faraway places. The world is, in no, is a no better place than it has ever been, despite all the technological advances. Then Jesus comes and he says to you and to me, you're to be salt to all of this. Salt sometimes delays decay. And part of what we do as believers is to speak to this immorality, to speak to a, a new way of life, a new morality, and a set of beliefs that can slow down this decay. And in the life of individuals, it can bring out real spiritual uh, change and rule out spiritual death. And we are the only ones who can do this, the only ones who can do this, because only our message, the message of the gospel, is anywhere near salty enough to make life meaningful and death less scary. Secondly, 
Salt makes one thirsty. The world shows no interest at all in the gospel at the moment, but salt does make some people thirsty. Our task is to create a thirst for the gospel. But how do we do that? There's a lovely example from the life of John Wesley. He was traveling across the Atlantic to do missionary work. He wasn't really even a Christian at the stage, strangely enough. But he's traveling across the Atlantic to do missionary work, and the ship was hit by a terrific storm, and he began to panic. And he suddenly noticed that some of his traveling companions, they were Moravians. They were so calm, and they just gently prayed and trusted God. And this caused him, this missionary, to really thirst for the true meaning of the gospel. And he began to attend their Bible study meetings and his whole outlook began to change. I have to ask us, ask you, when was the last time some unbeliever, some non-believer looked into your life or my life and said, I want what you've got. Our life and our testimony should be of such power and of such beauty that while it will obviously turn some people against us, it might cause some to thirst for what we have. Thirdly, salt is a preservative. Have you ever thought that actually the world could be a lot, lot worse than it already is? That it almost seems as if somehow someone or something is keeping the world from falling completely apart? In fact, I believe that it is exactly what God is doing through his provision of what we call common grace. He's preserving the world from total collapse. Common grace is God's goodness given commonly to all, the saved and the lost. And it's because of this common grace that we have laws and law offices, firemen and doctors, hospitals, proof that God is still caring for the world. And one of the ways in which God cares for a fallen world is that he makes sure that everywhere in society there are some godly people in the right place and at the right time to preserve society from total collapse or disaster. God anointed people, even when in a very small minority, can serve as a preservative in a nation. A little salt can go a long way. What is our impact then in our workplace? in our school or university, in our campus, in our social relationships, in our social activities. Number four, salt as seasoning. And I, I think probably, to be fair, this might be the most likely um, meaning here, the most likely interpretation. Jesus does talk about salt losing its savor. Salt makes things taste better. I, I like salt. I'm one of those who unfortunately use too much of it. Can't stand food with no salt. For me, it makes it taste so much nicer. I believe that the true Christian in today's society, though far from being appreciated, is nonetheless often the reason why the world is a better place than it would have been without the presence of God's Holy Spirit working in and through his people. I believe that in a time of hopelessness, maybe a time like this, in a time of political and financial corruption, with the media biased against true righteousness, and with so much that is wrong in the world, the presence of the true Christian can make a noticeable difference to those in despair. 
Salt makes sour things taste less sour. And if used rightly, can even make sweet things taste sweeter. Paul writes in Colossians 4 verse 6, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer anyone. An anonymous poet once wrote, To me, twas not the truth you taught, to you so clear, to me so dim, but when you came to me, you brought a sense of him. Yes, from your eyes, he beckoned me. And from your heart, his love was shared. And I lost sight of you and saw the Christ instead. That's how we are to be, the salt of the earth. Those kind of people who genuinely seek to be like Jesus. Those kind of people who have a genuine burden for those outside of Jesus, a compassion for those who hurt, and by their behaviors, the things they do and the things they say, they convince people that there is a God and he is a saving God. I would say this to you, and listen carefully. The true proof for the existence of God is not in a series of classical philosophical arguments. The true proof for the existence of God is in the observable presence of God in the lives of his people. Let me say that again. The true proof for the existence of God is in the observable presence of God in the lives of his people. We're to be salt. Maybe just one more. Salt as painful to an open wound. So we've been saying here that the Christian who exemplifies the attitudes and actions of the Beatitudes can make the world a better place. But it goes without saying that one is not always appreciated. You know that. You've experienced that. William Wilberforce, the great British Christian philanthropist who died in 1833, spoke out against slavery and was hated by many for a long, long time. And today when people speak up for marriage, between being, a, between, be, being between a man and a woman, people who speak out against abortion, people who fight pornography and sexual exploitation, all part of the message of true righteousness, will sometimes find themselves scorned and accused of hate speech. And worse, the message of the gospel is like salt to an open wound. Good, yes, but painful. When we witness to friends and family about Christ, we must not always expect them to say to us, oh, that's wonderful, what good news. I really like what you're saying. You know that's not true. No, the good news is often bad news to the one who simply wants to keep on living his or her life with no reference to God. It is salt to the wound. The gospel is by nature offensive. People simply do not like hearing that there is something wrong with them that they are sinners and heading for hell if they don't repent. They hate the message and they reject it vehemently. And you and I, as message bearers, are not going to win all the popularity contests. But you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. The, effect is, the effectiveness of salt is conditional upon its retaining its saltiness. 
salt is only effective if it is salty. Now strictly, and I read this the other day, scientifically speaking, salt can never lose its saltiness. We are given to understand that sodium chloride salt is a very stable chemical compound, which is resistant to almost any attack. Nevertheless, one way in which salt can lose its saltiness is through contamination. When it is mixed with impurities, thus becoming less effective and, and almost useless. Such desalted salt is unfit even for manure. And the Bible here says, Jesus says, it can only be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Historian Dr. David Turk suggests that in Jesus' day, what was popularly called salt was in fact just a white powder found possibly around the Dead Sea, which while it contains some sodium chloride, also contained much else. And of course, in those days, there were no refineries. So in this white powder, this white dust, sodium chloride was the most soluble component and it just got washed out. And the residue of white powder looked like salt, but neither looked nor tasted like salt. It was just road dust. Keeping the salt salty then. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So here we have Jesus warning us about our salt losing its saltiness. And again, in Mark chapter 9, verse 50, he says salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another, Jesus says. Salt, I believe, in the, this biblical context, is nothing more or less than Christian character Christian behavior as it is exemplified in the eight Beatitudes. Salt is Christian discipleship in word and deed. And so to retain our effectiveness, we need to retain our Christ-likeness, just as salt must retain its saltiness. This implies that if we as Christians become so assimilated or so contaminated with the morality and beliefs of the non-Christian world, we become worthless and we lose our influence. The influence of Christians in and on society depends on us being distinct, not identical. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put puts it this way. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts or repels it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. Otherwise, if we Christians are indistinguishable from non-Christians, we are useless. We might as well be discarded like saltless salt, thrown out and trampled underfoot. A.B. Bruce puts it so well. What a come down from being the saviors of society to supplying material for footpaths. We're to be as different from the world as salt is from the meat into which it is rubbed. As Christians, we are to be as different as the salt is from the wound onto which it is applied. We are not only to be different, but we should glory in our difference. We are to be different just as Jesus was different from the people he mixed with. We should rejoice in the fact that we as Christians are separate, unique. That's where the word holy comes from, separate. Literally standing out. 
There is something in us that marks us out and it should be clear and obvious to others. I think today, if, I, if I'm absolutely honest, this is one of the chief problems in the church today. There are far too many Christians who see their Christianity as simply a part of their lives. It's a kind of add-on. I have my social life, my work life, my family life, and then I have my Christian life. It's a part of my life just like any other part is. And that's why I don't stand out as any different. This is not the biblical view of the Christian life at all. Paul calls us a new creation. When we are born again, when we are in Christ, we are a new person altogether. The old me is dead. We look at Romans chapter 6. So my commitment to Christ is my whole life. I am first and foremost, from top to bottom, inside and out, soul, mind, body, spirit, totally in Christ. It is my family life, my work life, my social life that are the parts. It is my life in Christ that is the whole. So just stop for a moment, just stop for a moment to reflect on this. Is my Christian life everything to me? Or is it just a part of me? A part of me that I concentrate upon on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings. Or maybe a few minutes each day as I read my Bible and pray. Or is everything I think, say and do governed by my commitment to Jesus? Our anointing by God, our effectiveness for him, is the most precious commodity we have. But it is so precious that we have to take care that we don't lose it, that God might temporarily take it away from us. James, the brother of our Lord, echoes Jesus' words when he writes in James chapter 4 and verse 4, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Our usefulness to God is our and his most valuable asset and possession. We lose it and we become like road dust. We must and can never outgrow the Beatitudes. As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, living the, unhindered, the life of the unhindered work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are indeed what Jesus calls the salt of the earth. It is all about God having his way in and through us. What seems like such a little thing, just a pinch of salt, goes a long, long way. And that's why we are called salt. So the question would seem to be, what is your salt worth? How do you measure its worth? The answer has to be, I'm convinced, in the value and the impact, or the value of the impact we make in this world. How valuable is the impact you and I are making in this world? And by the world, I mean our family, our, our circle of friends, our, our social circle, those people we mix with on a day-by-day -day basis. The workplace, the people on our, we mix with on our online profiles, our school or college, university, our places of leisure and so on. All of the people we come into contact with, that's our world. And what is the value of the impact? What kind of impact are we making on that world? The value of your impact on the world is measured by a number of things. The way we love our neighbors, really love those people around us, closest to us. We make a positive contribution to people's needs. We are generous with what God has given us and we give it away. We share God's goodness with others materially and spiritually. 
We share the gospel message and see fruit upon our evangelism. That's the impact we're called to make. By being God's mouthpiece in a noisy world, let's add our voice to all the things that are being said. We open the word of God to those who don't or won't know it. Get our Bibles out, take them with us. Together we exemplify as a church what society should look and feel like. So here are the questions I, I leave with you uh, this morning. Am I, am I worth my salt? As we say, what is my salt worth? What is the value of the impact I make? And thirdly, finally, am I still as salty as I was when I first came to Jesus? Or have I lost my saltiness? It's a question I ask myself on numerous occasions. Salt, we must continue to be. And how do we maintain our saltiness? By staying close to our Savior. By speaking to him and listening to him. By being in his word. By praying and praising him. In Luke chapter 17, this same Jesus says, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Yes, these are, these are difficult days. These are days for some of persecution, of scorn, of humiliation often of God's people. And some of us are experiencing that from our own families and friends. I encourage you by letting you know, as you know already, that the the day is coming, which will be a different day. It will be a day of glorification of God's people. And on that day, the kingdom of God will be truly both inside and outside of us. It will be observable and we will experience it with great rejoicing. So I leave it with you. What is your salt worth this morning? Are you as salty as you ought to be? Are you as salty as you once were? Come back to him if you're not. And allow him to work in your life. Get rid of the stuff that contaminates the saltiness and see Jesus work through your life. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. Your word always speaks so powerfully to our lives. Lord, I pray that people would see past my words and hear your word in their hearts this morning. And if you do that, Lord, I shall be pleased and I shall be satisfied. And I shall give you praise and I shall give you glory. In the name of Jesus. Amen.